So welcome to Clinical D, episode 21. Uh, and we're going to talk today a bit about risk, uh, I think is the theme. And we're going to start with the idea of risk within the discussion around the withdrawal agreement and protocol uh, that was set up uh, to manage trade between uh, within the United Kingdom, um, and particularly between uh, GB and NI. The protocol was put in place to prevent a risk to the EU single market. But I think there are two very competing ideas of risk. We have the EU's absolute idea of risk, and that is that everything is at risk unless it's proven not to be. And a UK attitude to risk, which is more uh, nothing is at risk unless it's proven to be. So those two are quite far at different ends of the scale. But we're in a position at the moment where the EU is considering that an MS ready meal or a pot plant from a nursery in Yorkshire is a fundamental risk to the European Union and perhaps a, an end of civilization as we know it. Uh, I, I think that would be a fair assessment of where we're just standing at the moment, Owen. Yes, I think so. And um, this issue has been thrown into a kind of a different dimension as well by the European Commission's uh, decision a couple of weeks ago to trigger Article 16 because of the, the issue of vaccines. And we've now got into something of a negotiation process. We've got Michael Gove and uh, the European Commission exchanging letters. We've yet to see any sign from the European Commission at all that they're prepared to sort of revisit some of the, the more uh, onerous or over-the-top kind of elements of the protocol, or at least the, the way that the protocol's been applied. Yes, you then come back to the issue of risk, the proportionality of risk, whether there's an argument really that somebody buying a, a MS ready meal, as you've said, and maybe taking it into the Republic of Ireland can possibly be compromising the European single market. And if they are compromising the European single market, what sort of a sort of frail and fragile entity is it anyway that it can be so easily compromised? And, and, and perhaps alongside risk, you also have then weakness because in both the triggering of or near triggering of Article uh, 16. There is a weakness there within the EU in terms of its absolute approach to processes generally. Um, and I think that, that, if you like, has, has focused everybody's attention on the future of the protocol and the future use of the protocol by the EU to basically constantly be a thorn in the side of the UK. Yeah, and you've got two things colliding as well. You've got the EU's kind of legalistic um, approach to this, and you've also got um, maybe in the UK, UK side, kind of a rigor about implementing things that you don't get in the in the rest of the European Union. And I do wonder whether some of this, uh, some of the difficulties that we've had in the opening few weeks, we talk about, uh, we used to talk about um, Britain gold plating uh, kind of EU legislation and things, but we're we're getting kind of anecdotally these tales about um, officials being particularly um, sort of rigorous in the way that they're uh, doing checks and, and, and uh, read something this morning in the newsletter about, um, you know, the, the issue of machinery and tractors and things coming into the into, into Northern Ireland and, and people getting down on the ground, shining torches into the um, nooks and crannies of these tractors. And 
even aside from the kind of political issues around that, you do wonder why, why be so officious? Why be so um, really, uh, so create such problems uh, in, in the way that you're doing your job? Why do officials have to do this? At the back of all this, we have to remember that the EU has, has itself, it was, this was always designed to create problems. The, the EU always saw Northern Ireland as the UK's Achilles heel in its negotiations. The reason that the backstop was conceived, the reason that the Northern Ireland Protocol was put in place was always partly to make sure that Brexit hurt and that Brexit was problematic. It was intended to make sure that there were consequences. So there, why I, I, I was never quite clear at any point, you know, when the government were talking about the joint committee and the way that these things would be ameliorated, even some of the of, of the expectations in recent days in the EU that will suddenly be an outbreak of reasonableness. We know that that will not happen. The EU will be as obstructive as they possibly can be in this issue because it's their way of continually prodding Britain in the eye. And, you know, we, we shouldn't lose sight of that in, in, in all the discussion of the, the practicalities of the protocol. The other thing, of course, that compounded the difficulties was the British government's attitude during the backstop and perhaps the protocol as well. I think it was a way of trying to pull some more doubtful members of the party into line on Theresa May's idea of, of a softer Brexit, uh, rather than being honest that basically we're heading for a soft Brexit, boys. They, well, they used the Good Friday Agreement to almost force a point. And we also had, of course, the Irish government going in and basically showing pictures of army singers and suggesting that we were going to go back to war if they, if something like backstop or protocol weren't uh, actually part of a final agreement. Yes, and, and we've forgotten this. Well, either we've forgotten it or, or we're forgetting it deliberately by this stage that Theresa May allowed all this stuff um, to be used to try and get her kind of ideal outcome in Brexit. And one of the most revealing stories during the whole Brexit saga for me was the Ollie Robbins business when he was overheard in a bar in Brussels describing the backstop as a sort of a bridge to um, a, a kind of a wider customs union that would include the European Union and the United Kingdom. And, you know, th there was never a problem if Theresa May believed that the UK should have a close customs arrangement with the EU or a close regulatory arrangement with the single market. If that was her belief, she should have argued for it. She should have built up a coalition that might have got that off the ground. But instead, she decided to use Northern Ireland as a tool to kind of lever that position uh, into place against the opposition of parts of her party, uh, that sort of Eurosceptic wing of her party. And whenever then we get into this discussion about the best of both worlds and the idea that Theresa May's backstop was a superior arrangement to Boris Johnson's protocol. We have to remember that every objection to which, uh, which unionists have to the Northern Ireland Protocol also applied to Theresa May's deal because mm -hmm. um, th this, the, the whole idea of a backstop and, and the whole idea of alignment in the short term was premised on the fact that there then could be divergence later. And then at that point, 
every feature of the protocol and more came into came into place. Theresa May's government, people seem to have forgotten, was hanging on by a thread. Yeah. Um, and the yeah. irony, of, the irony, of course, in, in all of that, is that had she made a good case for a softer Brexit that would have commanded a majority in Parliament, that could well have included the DUP. Yes. The only, only red line in the Brexit discussions was that we leave on exactly the same terms. Northern Ireland would, would be leaving the EU on exactly the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. Whether that was a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit, all they said was it needed to be the same Brexit for everyone. I have to say there's elements in the media who are trying to make this into a, a nationalist unionist thing, which I think is deeply, deeply uh, divisive and unhelpful at this point in time, because you know the impact on consumers in Northern Ireland of what is going on in the protocol will hit absolutely everybody. It's not going to hit unionists more than nationalists or nationalists more than unionists. It's, a, it's going to be a more expensive place to live in terms of, of weekly shopping. And our choice as consumers is going to be considerably reduced because a lot of online small traders are simply not going to supply to Northern Ireland. And for all the talk of forcing people to trade uh, with Northern Ireland on the same basis as the rest of the UK, I have never heard anything more authoritarian and dictatorial than that, particularly when some of those ideas are coming out of a party that's meant to believe in free trade and is meant to believe in free enterprise. I think it's absolutely uh, amazing I'm hearing those. I never thought I'd hear it. You hear that from China maybe, but I can't imagine hearing it in the UK. I, just, just incredible. It's, it's a nonsense. I mean, are you going to force um, the owner of a corner shop in Banbridge to open another corner shop in Ballymena, even though they can't afford to? I mean, what sort of half-witted... Well, uh, how, can, how, can you, how can you force a nursery owner in Yorkshire to send pot plants to a nursery in Northern Ireland when he literally cannot send those pot plants because there is a ban on the soil? This is trying to fix something that is fundamentally broken. And the more you try, the bigger mess you make and the more unlike it, it you know, unlike the original item uh, it becomes. It's just, it's just a mess. It needs a rethink and it needs a rethink rather rapidly um, from the British government in terms of what it is prepared ultimately to accept. And yes, there will be risks and there will be consequences, but that's where they have left themselves. It's there agreement at the end of the day yes and they do have this that they do have a certain amount of leverage now that they didn't have in the past because the eu have triggered this article because that um sanction is now available to the british government whether they want to actually go, uh, go through and do it do it or whether they want to use it to uh, as a threat and in order to get some sort of concessions that it's going to make because as people on the ground in northern ireland what we want um, is some sort of solution to the issues that the protocol poses, whether that's to actually get rid of the protocol in its entirety, or whether it's to negotiate derogations and other ways of making this work. That's not even the most important thing. We'd like to see a bit more of that attitude from the kind of people who were calling for a rigorous implementation of the protocol just a few weeks ago, and now seem to see it as 
a means or seem to support the EU's view of it as a means of kind of reopening negotiations on Britain's term of terms well, of and, and, and and the solutions that are being proffered, such as uh, an SDS agreement with the rest of Europe, seems to be about adding Europe back into um, the withdrawal agreements. I mean, their their notion is simply that you keep adding stuff back in until uh, you can't even tell whether we're in or out of the EU. That is the solution of those who are promoting the protocol. It's quite well, the idea that yes. the, the idea is always to open things back up again and take us back to where we were yeah. you know, months or years ago or whatever. And there's just a complete lack of realism there as to the fact that they lost the argument in the first place. And, you know, I, I can sit here and say, well, if it were up to me tomorrow, do I would I particularly care if we signed an SPS agreement with the, the EU, something along the lines of Switzerland? Personally, I wouldn't. But is it, it's just not deliverable. Uh, and I think we're past that, that point. The British government have to take it back to where, protocol back to where I think it probably had an envision of where it would land. If we go back to the early proposals, the, the first document that the British government produced after the referendum, it was largely a, a practical document that said, there are things here we can do. And probably those things are doable within the protocol. Um, but they are minimal and they're largely geared to north-south trade and ignoring uh, east-west trade. And I think that's where you really ultimately need to get back to. Do the practical stuff that might, in some world, create a risk to the EU single market. Um, but let's not you know, create a, a border that is basically uh, likely to destabilise the very thing I was going to say that the EU most cared about, uh, although it's quite clear now they, they don't give two figs, which is the Good Friday Agreement. You've got a destabilising element now in the Good Friday Agreement, and that is um, the border down the Irish Sea. And as a destabilising factor, the British government is entirely within its rights to basically pull back uh, in terms of implementation and elements that are going to exacerbate that political division and that danger to the Good Friday Agreement. Well, I, I didn't believe for a minute that the EU was ever concerned about the Belfast Agreement. I think we saw, as I argued earlier, I think we saw Northern Ireland as a means of exerting yeah. pressure on the British government and, and used it as a lever quite recklessly during the negotiations. I think we continue to do so because all we need is a modicum of goodwill here to um, start applying these rules more sensibly, start looking at the goods that are actually at risk of entering the, the single market and being sold on, not uh, uh, you know entering the single market by somebody from Dundalk, you know, nipping over the border to, to buy a washing machine in Uri or something like that. Something that's actually that actually makes a, a significant difference to to trade. Yes, I mean, I don't think you're going to see a massive influx of washing machines to Northern Ireland that will suddenly end up in the markets of Marseille. Uh, I think that's just not going to happen, is it? Uh, we we're talking about risk, absolute risk versus uh, a real or, or an expectation of risk. Uh, if we can just move over to the discussion around uh, COVID and, and Northern Ireland and, and restrictions uh, where we are at the moment. And I think everybody was a bit 
taken aback by the chief medical officer's announcement that these the restrictions would still be in place by 2022. And whilst there's been a little bit of rolling back, the impression given is that th those are going to be quite substantial into 2022. Uh, and that's based on a risk of, well, I'm not quite sure what risk is in his head, but the notion that the, the virus is still about. Um, I, I think there's two comments to that, I think just to, to get things rolling. One, COVID's going to be with us for many, many, many years, I suspect. It's a virus. It won't go away and we can't stop it. The idea of zero COVID is simply putting up a great big border and not letting anyone in or out. That's just simply not possible, just not economically possible. And it's not uh, probably um, social uh, uh, or politically possible either. And in terms of the, the other aspect of, of risk, the, the restrictions, whilst they were certainly about uh, reducing the impact of uh, the virus, reducing the number of infections. That was largely, if I'm not mistaken, to reduce the pressure on the NHS, which has really been the driving force of policy since last March, uh, that the NHS should not be overwhelmed. From the past couple of weeks, certainly, certainly this week, if you look at the figures uh, from NISRA, you can see quite clearly that the most substantial decreases in inpatients are coming within the older age groups. And you have to believe that that is a result of vaccinations basically suppressing the number of, of infections, uh, particularly in inpatients, because a lot of those inpatients are probably there from before the vaccine rollout had actually taken full effect. So you're, you're seeing a, a lag in, in, the, in the vaccination yeah. program, uh, but also then you can see a, a clear impact of, of what that has achieved. But if you also look then at the total number of days spent in a hospital as an inpatient by people in the various age groups. Now, I know that these numbers are people will have spent more than one night. From what I can see on the, on the NISRA charts, there's people who have spent many months in hospital because of COVID. But in terms of total bed nights, the total bed nights of, of those under 19 as a, as a consequence of COVID have been 170, sorry, 143 out of more than 100,000 bed nights. Mm. That is uh, 0.0013 uh, of, of, of the total. I mean, it's a, it's a minuscule total, uh, but about 90% are in the over 50s. If everybody over the age of 50 has been vaccinated, by the end of April, at least with their first shot. Their second shot would then be completed by the end of June. There is a marginal risk of infection resulting in hospitalization at that point. And you really have to think that to all intents and purposes, the panic or the impact of COVID will at that point have largely disappeared from a public health perspective in a risk to NHS level, or even actually at a transmission level? Yes, and the operative word there is marginal risk, because that's something that we can deal with. And just as we're, we've talked about the virus mutating, I think policy has mutated from that idea of protecting the NHS to now driving down cases, whether the cases are resulting in hospitalizations or not. The, the cases are going to be driven down by the vaccine in any case, you would have to expect. You start to wonder what is the end game here or what is thinking 
behind this? Are we going for zero COVID? Or are we, do we really have a, a will to kind of open up uh, the economy and get things going and start? Zero, zero COVID is not a realistic no. option. It's just well, not. I mean, you just yeah. have to accept that. Living with the virus is the realistic option. It's the only realistic approach. Well, and on that basis, you have to you have to think that in terms of once you've got the vaccination program, let's just even to the to the fifties, you have removed the substantive risk from society. And in terms, you know, in terms of kids, your know, kids going to school. Well, if only one hundred and forty three bed nights have been down to to uh, in almost a year have been down to under nineteens, the risk to under nineteens is pretty slim. You know, not not of catching it, but certainly of being seriously ill with with COVID. It's a marginal risk. But if you've taken the clinically clinically vulnerable and everybody over fifty, you have wiped out any chance of 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 serious illness arising amongst the teaching population. You know, you, the, the 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 argument that you know, great if they're vaccinated, that would be wonderful. In in once the over fifties are done, but it's a, of going to be of marginal input. It's like saying. We can't go back to school because we might have we might have to take time off because of COVID. That's like saying we can't go back to school because we might have to take off uh, some time because of flu. The, the relative risks here have to be considered. As I understand it, um, you know, the, the, the expert consensus is now that we're moving away from the idea of coronavirus as a pandemic disease and it's becoming endemic, which means that by definition, it's going to be in the community and that's not going to go away anytime soon. If Michael McBride's um, kind of view of things is correct, and it's basically a retread of the argument about vaccines not being a silver bullet that we've heard from uh, national scientific advisors and, and politicians um, lately, the only thing that was different was that he was more explicit about the length of time and we can expect to be incar incarcerated. If that bleak assessment really does reflect how ministers are thinking, especially in Northern Ireland, and uh, we're not sure about that because Robin Swan offered a few qualifiers, although he didn't say anything that contradicted McBride. Um, it shows how dramatically the lockdown ideology has strayed from its original purposes. And there's not really any pretense any longer that decision makers are measuring the threat posed by coronavirus against damage restrictions do to every aspect of our lives, whether it's, you know, the economy, the general health of the population or the education of our children. We, we've locked down into this, this way of thinking, uh, the lockdown mentality, the lockdown ideology, whatever you want to call it. And it's something that if we ever aspire to get our um, communities back up and running, to get our economy back up and running, to get our children back into school, that we've really got to to shake and got to get over it's not easy in northern ireland because we have you know a number of things that feed into it whether it's the over large uh, public sector and the fact that therefore you don't hear so volubly the voices of people who people whose livelihoods are threatened are, are already being destroyed by this and the fact that you know we, we've got parties who really ideologically they're quite comfortable with large amounts of public cash and expanding the, the, the public sector, kind of crowding out uh, private enterprise. 
But even here, we're going to have to get over this and get over it quickly because is it not sustainable? But it's not even going to be justifiable once uh, deaths and uh, once deaths uh, lessen and, and once the hospitals begin to um, come out the other side of this crisis. Well, I think we're, we're going to have to wait and see what happens politically. But the utterances of the chief medical officer, when compared to the data that's being published on this, the two don't seem compatible. Well, even um, just another point on the Oxford vaccine, um, you know, this idea that we need these prolonged uh, restrictions is being driven by the idea that it, it's not so effective in stopping the South African variant spreading. But we do think that it prevents serious disease. So what, what, what has been the change here? Have we moved from thinking that this is, uh, our intention is to stop serious disease to the fact that our intention is now to stop any disease at all, even if it's a mild illness that you can easily deal with at home. But if the people are getting a mild illness, it's really not um, a public health problem. It might be annoying for them. You know, we, we live with all sorts of mild illnesses, whether it's sore throats, colds, uh, and, and up to the flu, which is really quite unpleasant, but still in most cases is not life-threatening. So we're never going to bring the risk down to zero. It's got to be a proper assessment of the risks and a proper balance, balancing of those risks against other things. And we've got to the point now where the discussion has been so closed down on a lot of this, that if you do ask to see data, if you do ask to see a kind of cost evaluation, cost benefit analysis, if you will, of uh, what justifies these things, you're almost cast as a denier or a, a skeptic, right. i.e. you're sort of just like somebody who, who claims that the disease doesn't exist or that it's not dangerous. It's just become such a impoverished debate that unless we manage to throw more light on it and unless we manage to become more open about it, we're going to just do so much damage to our societies. Well, hopefully our little podcast gets a few people thinking. It'll do the trick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't think it's going to change the world. Uh, but even if, it, if, if it's listened to by a few and those few start to think a bit more deeply and that spreads out, hopefully there's a ripple effect from our little our little efforts every few weeks. Um, Catch up with you again soon. Owen, good seeing you. Thanks, David.